Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride, ride through the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And this morning, riding the sober train with us, we have Michael Charles, MC13, right? MMC13. MMC, yes. yeah, that's right. Boom. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Drifter. Thanks for having me back. So we've decided that we're going to follow you and maybe do a little series. And this first episode, we're going to talk about what prompted you to get sober and then your journey, right? And then we're going to follow you as we go through this journey too. So do you want to start off, kind of tell us what motivated you to get sober? Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me give a little background here. So I'm I'm currently 43 years old. I started drinking back in my teens. So 13, 14 were my very first experiences with alcohol. I remember my first buzz with a friend of mine. She stole a bottle of liquor from her grandmother's basement and we drank it in a park. And I remember, you know, that very first feeling, that very first fuzziness, I asked her that day, can you go get more? Can we go grab another bottle? You know, it was, it was just an indication of things to come in hindsight. Like it was, it was never going to be enough for me. And, you know, I started out drinking in the teenage years to really kind of fit in. I, I found a network of people that I felt accepted by when I kind of slipped into the party crowd, whereas as connection and, and things like that had been a struggle for me. I'd always kind of felt like an outcast and dealt with a lot of bullying in early years. And so it was this positive affirmation cycle in the beginning. And so that's kind of what led me down the road to alcohol and started to find my network of people who drank like I did. You know, I knew already before I could even legally buy alcohol in, in the U.S., which is 21. By 19, I was I was waking up with the shakes already. You know, I rarely didn't have booze in the house. I drank I was a daily drinker, you know, from my my late teens on. And but I managed to kind of be a functioning alcoholic throughout the majority of my 20s, really started to decide that the misery was getting to be enough when I when I reached my late 20s. It was causing me financial problems. I had a lot of debt. I used to, I had a bar that I used to drink at back then that would actually let me run a tab. And so I would go and I would build up this tab and I would get booze and I would get food and they even had a cigarette vending machine. I'd get my smokes there. They'd cut me off at two or $300. I'd have to pay it down and then they'd open it again. And I can't tell you how many times I relived that cycle, just owing them hundreds of dollars of debt for booze and cigarettes. And, and if I had credit cards, it would go towards alcohol. I did manage to maintain full-time work at the time. I was in the medical industry. I was working three 12-hour shifts, which was beautiful as someone who loved to drink and party as much as I did. I was three days on and four days off. And, and so I would just have a four-day party every week, you know, and then struggle when it came time to go back to work that first day and, and just basically spend those three days working and sleeping, working and sleeping, and then go back to my four-day party. And it just, so around that time, actually, I had a manager who saw potential in me and she she really kind of pushed me to grow in my career, to step into a lead role and ultimately a department supervisor role. And so I had to transition from those 312 to a five, eight hour week. And it became kind of evident through that time that I was struggling with attendance. I was struggling with getting to work on time. 
you know, because of my drinking, I, I remained a daily drinker. I would get off work. I would drink all evening. I would wake up in the morning and I would feel awful. And I would just, I, I would dread getting out of bed. I would lay there and hit my snooze bar repeatedly, like until it was already after time for me to be at work. And I'm still hitting the snooze bar because I just felt so awful. And just in that cycle of promising myself, I wasn't going to drink that night. And then, you know, the afternoon rolls around and starting to feel a little bit better. And by the time I get home, it's just, ah, oh, you know, can't wait to open that first beer and lived that cycle just endlessly for, for a number of years there. And so the kind of eye-opening moment, what, what really kind of helped me recognize that it was time to do something about it. Ironically enough, I was at a girls' night with my boss uh, from the time and a, a fellow supervisor, and I admitted to them that I felt like I had a problem with alcohol. And my boss encouraged me to go through what was called an employee assistance program at the, the hospital that I worked at. You could see a counselor for free. And so I started talking to this counselor who encouraged me to check out Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I was about 27 at the time when I started kind of dipping my toe into the recovery world. Started going to AA, got about six months sober, I think, that, that first go round and was kind of feeling good. But really, I think, slipped into some kind of cross-addiction substitution right around that time. And, and in looking back at it, I recognize, I think I started to substitute love or relationships for alcohol, still seeking that dopamine hit. And so I kind of started relationship hopping at the time and, of course, was attracting unhealthy partners because I had not done any work to try to get healthy myself yet at that phase. I was really specifically focused on quitting drinking. And for about two years kind of went on like that and had, you know, some chunks of some decent sobriety time and then would slip and drink a breakup would happen or something and I would just fall back on my old coping mechanisms. In 2009, I had really kind of felt like I had spun out for the first time felt really out of control felt really hopeless was drinking more was was experimenting with other drugs pills cocaine and really just had one day where it hit me that I woke up that morning again, late for work, supposed to already be there. You know, I think it was halfway through the day and just said, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I need to get sober, really gets over. I'm going to die. I'm going to drink myself into the grave. And so I actually contacted my boss, same boss who had, who had helped me a couple years prior and let her know I'm, I'm trying to get myself into rehab today, if at all possible. And it really upset her, you know, to, to be honest, I was in a leadership role at this time and, and just kind of dropping the ball and dropping all my responsibilities in her lap. But she did. Ultimately, she said, you need to come in and, and fill out some SMLA paperwork so that, you know, we can protect your job. And, 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 and this is something if, if people aren't aware, you know, if you do have a full-time employer, seeking addiction recovery is protected. It's a medical condition. And so talk to your HR representatives or reach out to me. I'm in HR as a matter of fact. So I'm happy to help provide guidance on this, but this is something that I knew I was able to do and I needed to do in order to be the best, best version of myself. So I did go in to fill out this, this FMLA paperwork with her. And when I was walking into the department, she was walking past me the other direction and she was in tears. And our senior manager was walking up behind her and I kind of caught her and said, you know, what's, what's going on. And she looked at me, she said, 
your boss's brother just died. She just found out that he died. He overdosed on alcohol and pills. And my boss, you know, a little further up the hall stopped and turned around and came back to me and gave me a huge hug. And she said, you go get yourself well. And I mean, that was, that was such a powerful moment. I've carried that moment with me through all of my recovery and I've leaned on it numerous times. So I went to a 30 day rehab at that time. And that was really a great foundation for me that, that led me into my thirties, spent almost the majority of my thirties sober. I had an eight and a half year straight chunk of sobriety at one point in there where I didn't drink at all. Learned a lot through that time, but also eventually slipped away from from any sort of recovery support and really started to flirt with the idea of moderated drinking again. And by moderated, I mean the idea was never to have a drink or two, you know, like that, that the the purpose of one drink was lost on me always has been. So my, my idea of moderating my drinking was going to be to get drunk once or twice a month. <laughs> and that seemed, you know, totally legit to me. You know, it was better than getting drunk seven days a week, like I used to do. And I, I shared this with my partner at the time, who was a normal drinker. His drinking had escalated a bit through the the our relationship. We were living together. In the beginning, he didn't really drink around me, and it kind of progressed to where he always had alcohol around the house. And 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 I think in part that led to me flirting with the ideas. I was kind of exposed to this belief system again of alcohol is the way to unwind, alcohol is the way to relax, alcohol is the way to have fun, you know, and that's just sort of the culture he and his friend group still existed in. And for a long time in my recovery, I wasn't around that that thought system, that thought process. I had friends in recovery and I had friends, you know, most of the people in my family are not big drinkers. And so it it challenged my belief system and the fact that I had drifted from any sort of recovery program partnered with that kind of led me back down this road of thinking that it's it's something that I wanted to try again. Let's talk about that because you were sober eight and a half years. That's a long time. Yep. So was that 12 steps that you were working during that time? In the beginning, it was. So that that period started... Actually, it's when I when I got back from rehab, I think I got about two years sober and then I had another slip in there. I think for about six months, I kind of spun out for a while. And then after that, I went back to AA and really invested myself in that program at that time. So I, I worked with a sponsor. I got involved at my local club. I joined what's called group conscience for one of the meetings that I was a regular at. So I kind of had this service position that I go to their, their service meetings once a month and kind of take meeting minutes and, and, you know, provide insight and do some outreach and things like that. I got involved in some of the community events they did, bake sales and dances and things like that. And, and, and I was working the 12 steps at the time. And as someone who now doesn't really align with a 12 step program, 100%, but I still see a lot of the value of some of those. And I see a lot of parallels between the 12 steps and a lot of other recovery programs in that it's still all about doing a lot of self-work. It's about unearthing past traumas, you know, those resentments, those things 
that still bother us and eat at us and trying to figure out what they are and where they come from and make them better if we can or learn acceptance. You know, there's so many parallels between the 12-step programs and traditional therapy and things like that, that at the end of the day, I feel like that community and that sober network are are the keys, the fundamentals to me to kind of stay plugged in and, and continue to work the recovery. Man, you have so much experience in recovery, <laughs> Michael. You're just amazing. I mean, that's a lot of friggin' experience, the way that you've been involved with everything and then all the different types of recovery that you've been working with. You're even into neuroscience and all of that. Do you see what happened when you decided that you could moderate again? You know, it just... Going into it with that idea of moderation, I, I truly believed at the time that that was something that I would be able to do. I think I had forgotten about the obsession and the cravings and how difficult those pieces are to manage, because that was something that I had really left behind me at some phase in there. You know, I stopped thinking about alcohol all the time. And and so it it didn't seem far-fetched in the beginning to me to be able to get drunk and then just go back to my normal life, you know, and have a hangover like a normal person for one day and then go through the week and not think about it again. But that wasn't how it worked for me. That's that's not how my brain is wired. My brain is programmed, you know, to fall back into old patterns. It recognized that alcohol, that chemical substance that it had relied on so strongly for so many years previously. And it went, oh my God, it's back. You know, and and it just awakened these intense cravings and these intense desires. And suddenly any skills that I had learned to deal with life, to deal with stress or sadness or happiness or celebration all went out the window because all my brain wanted, all those neurotransmitters wanted was that alcohol back. And so it totally awakened these cravings that became almost obsessive, you know, right out the gate. It was when they talk about it doesn't matter how long it's been since you drank, you start drinking, you go right back to where you were. That was definitely my experience. New York City has a lot of lights. And I bet when you opened up that door again, those neurotransmitters lit up like New York City. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So it quickly slipped from this idea of one or two drunks a month to getting drunk every weekend and then getting drunk Friday and Saturday. And then and then it started to become a problem between my partner and I because I didn't drink like he drank. If I drank, I wanted to start drinking at 4 p.m. and then at 2 p.m. and then at noon. And it started to become a point of contention between us. And so I started to hide my drinking from him. And then, you know, it was easier to hide liquor bottles in the bathroom than it was to hide beer. And so I started buying hard liquor. And then I started completely hiding my drinking from him and, and going through these phases where it was like, no, I'm going to quit. I know it's out of control. And so I would stop for a few weeks, but then I would go and buy more booze and drink in secret until, you know, it became clear that I was drunk and it would, you know, it just became this cycle, this vicious cycle of binging for a few days up to a couple weeks and then getting this sobriety and, you know, going through it again, getting off of it again, gaining weeks to maybe a couple of months of sobriety and then slipping back into it. And that has been the pattern for almost the last four years now, you know, at the longest I've had six months straight sober over these last four years. 
shortest would be, you know, potentially a few days to a few weeks before I would slip into drinking again. I think the hopelessness is even deeper when you're in the situation that you are, because you know the tools, you have all these tools right in front of you, and then you get somewhere and you just like automatically hit this bucket button and boom, you're gone. But I think at, at the same time, you're so brave. And like you said, this has been the last four years. I didn't really know about this until we had the Moab Sober Meetup. And kind of run us through that, what happened there. Absolutely. Something that I've really, you know, recognized through this period of, of slipping and binging, my main driver to do that is stress, stress and anxiety. And so what happens for me is I kind of build up, it's like a pressure gauge is building internally and things compile and feel worse and feel heavier until I just sort of hit this breaking point and hit that fuck it button. And I, I see, can always see it coming. I, I know when I start flirting with the idea of drinking again, I know when I'm feeling overwhelmed, but it's like this tipping point where even though I recognize I have tools and I have a network and this is the time to reach out, I just don't want to. You know, I, I make this conscious decision that I'm going to check out for a few days because for whatever reason, it feels like the pros outweigh the cons to do that. And that that escapism, that need for escape is going to be fulfilled by this and it will somehow help. And and it doesn't, you know, it, it compiles everything. It brings the anxiety and the guilt and all that back and the sickness and things like that. So just before Moab, I think that was actually right, right around when I had about that six month uh, chunk of sobriety. And so leading up to the Moab trip, I took, I think, about three days off prior to when we were going to Moab. So uh, I think it was a Friday. I think I took like that Wednesday off through the following Wednesday. I took a week off. And like that Tuesday evening prior to Moab, I knew I had this chunk of time off and that's a big trigger for me because it's, it's this whole, yeah, I've got four or five days, I can drink, I can get it out of my system and I'll be okay to go back to work next week, you know? And so I started drinking, honestly, I think at that time with the thought that I'll drink for a couple of days and then I'll head to Moab and nobody needs to know. But of course it, it didn't pan out that way. Once I start drinking I slip into this hair of the dog idea where I wake up just feeling horrible the next day. And so I wake up and drink again, thinking that that's kind of the only way to feel better. And it's literally starting with shots of vodka or whiskey at six o'clock in the morning, you know? And so when it came time to go to Moab, I mean, Moab had been my baby. That was my idea. I'm the one that planted the seed. I'm the one that got people heading out that way. I, I suggested the location. And so I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to not be there. And so I went ahead and headed out there driving with alcohol in my system and, you know, drinking to get through the worst of the feelings and honestly got lost on the way there. It's, a, you know, not a long trip between New Mexico and there, but I, I lost my way. I didn't make it to the meetup the night that I was supposed to be there. Worried a heck of a lot of wonderful people who were waiting on me to get there. And and these are these are just some of the examples of where alcohol can take me, right? That's that's not who I am. I pride myself on being someone reliable and someone who's gonna be where she says she'll be. And instead I I stood people up and I thankfully 
nothing worse happened, right? Thankfully, I didn't end up in a ditch somewhere or in jail or heaven forbid, hitting another vehicle, you know, injuring or killing someone else. It it could have had a much worse outcome. But I was I was definitely just buried in guilt and shame and felt horrible about how that entire situation played out until I got to Moab. And I've got to say, what a magical environment to be in as someone who was fresh off a binge, who was going through the kindling effect, which I'm going to get into in just a minute here, those ever increasing withdrawal symptoms and almost delirium tremens and, and, and to be surrounded by this loving group of people that said things like, you're so brave for coming and we're so proud of you for being here and surrounded me with love and hugs and fluids and anti-nausea medication and, (laughs) you know, was completely understanding if I just needed to lay down and take things easy. And this, this to me is how we need to be treating addiction. This to me is the solution. We need to break down the judgment and the stigma and thinking less of people who drink. And we need to surround them with love and acceptance and understanding because that is what helped me get through that binge. That is what got me back, you know, my feet back on the path of sobriety. And there have been slips since then, obviously. But you showed up and I'll tell you what, I just had so much admiration for you and the bravery that you had showing up, coming in there and getting amongst all of us. It was just amazing. And I think you're right. I think that we need to celebrate everybody when they show up like that. We hear a lot of times that when people reset, now they're not qualified. And that's a stigma that we want to break right here because you are qualified. You have a huge background in recovery and and methods and systems and everything else. I just applauded you so much for showing up. And I was excited that you were there. And it felt amazing. It was just an absolutely remarkable experience to to walk into love and, and acceptance and and be wanted there. You know, for those who have gone through this cycle, those first two or three days getting off the drinking again, man, you feel lower than dirt. You know, your stress hormones are through the roof. Your body's dumping cortisol and all these things into your system. And all you're doing is playing those records in your head of self-abuse and, you know, what a worthless piece of shit I am and how could I do this again? And I've let the whole world down and, and it's just next to impossible to shut those voices off. But man, having external voices around me that were saying, we love you and we're proud of you and you're doing all the right things and this is brave and you are strong to say those things to me when I couldn't say those things to myself made all the difference in the world. So the next sober meetup where we met up was Asheville. Yes. Since we're talking about meetups, you made it to that meetup. I did. And Asheville, man, what an amazing trip that was. It was absolutely, it was beautiful this time. I I wasn't having to shake off the latest binge. Got to really be active and participate and hike with this group. The interesting thing, once we got home from Moab, the planning for the next meetup started within days. I, I think it was less than a week before we had landed on our next meetup date and location because it was just such a earth shattering experience for so many of us. And, you know, the, the community that we're a part of, I Am Sober, is a worldwide network. And so we have people coming in from Canada and from Australia and all over the States. And 
it's just remarkable to meet these people that you've seen on Zoom meetings and actually give them a hug and touch their hands and being able to participate in these real life meetups. It's it's almost surreal, you know, and it's it's such an amazing part of of being part of this community and really getting to live the blessings of sobriety. Yeah. I've known you all this time and I've known that you've been resetting. And regardless, I think that we need more voices like yours. And that's why I've asked you to be part of Sobertown and do some of the podcasting with us, because everybody needs to know out there that they're qualified regardless of what's going on. And what better person to like be talking to the people in the trenches than someone that's in the trenches, right? When I got sober, Michael, it wasn't the people that were further down in the milestones that helped me out. It was the people that were right beside me with the same milestones that knew exactly what I was going through. And that's why I think that you're so important to this community. Absolutely. You you feel that kinship, that connection. You know that this person can relate. It can feel a little untouchable to relate to the person who's got three years or six years when you're at 30 days. You've been going through this reset cycle. Tell us a little bit about how it is for you. Definitely. And and this is something that I do want to spend a little bit of time talking on. Like I indicated earlier, my my biggest drive to drink again is this this push for escapism. It's when my my stress hits critical mass. It's, you know, when my anxiety is through the roof and it just it's just an indicator that I have work to continue to do on building coping mechanisms. I, I have had a chance to work with a great therapist this year who has given me some tools in dealing with in the face of anxiety, in the face of panic attacks, different things I can do to try to curtail those. You know, one of the big things that I think a lot of us in addiction do is future trip and get ourselves wrapped up into, you know, I'm, I've had financial struggles this year, for example. And if I let my mind run free, man, I am a homeless bag lady with no job. And I've had to take my dogs to the shelter and, you know, I've been disowned by my family. I have nothing if I can, if I just let that brain run free. And, and my therapist was great at giving me tools to just, you know, recognize this, acknowledge it, but literally say to my brain, these are just thoughts. This this is not what is happening right now. This is just a thought and it's okay right now. I am safe. Right now I am sitting in my home. I have a job. I have food in my refrigerator. My bills are paid and I am okay. And that can help even your brain just kind of goes, oh, okay. So So we don't need to hit the panic button. It's not, you know... Go, 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 because your brain is very literal. And when it starts saying, we're going to be a bag lady, we need to panic. We need to pack. It just, and it dumps those stress hormones and it's this self-fueling cycle. So a lot of that realization and just recognizing what is happening and what is leading to those feelings is a huge part of it. I mentioned the kindling effect, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. So the kindling effect is something that particularly plagues binge drinkers. So those of us who start and stop drinking regularly. And what the kindling effect does is it actually makes each withdrawal worse. And I have definitely seen this happen in my experience. So over my my drinking over these last couple of years, like I mentioned, I kind of went from beer and weaker substances to stronger and stronger substances. I've gotten into the hard liquor. 
I have drank for as few as two days and gone through withdrawals for an additional three to four after getting off of that. And I am talking tremors. I am talking auditory hallucinations. You know, I hear things that I know are not there. I hear music. I hear voices. It sounds like people are talking down the hall, but I'm at home by myself. I know it's not possible. I have had tactile hallucinations where it feels like somebody's walking around on the bed with me while I'm laying down. You know, these are all, and these are things that never used to happen to me. So in my twenties, when I was drinking, the big thing that I suffered with was just overall feeling like garbage and nausea and poor sleep and some of that shakiness, you know, but man, it has gotten so much worse and, and it doesn't seem to matter how long I drink for. Oh, and insomnia is another big one. I will not sleep for the first two nights getting off drinking at all. It's just completely awake for those nights. Doesn't matter what I take, what I do, you know, and it's just, it's, it is absolutely miserable. And what scares me and what I've been reading about with the kindling effect is as that progresses, you can get into delirium tremens, you can get into seizures, you can get into cardiac issues. It can ultimately lead to death. And that is the thing about addiction. That is the scary thing about addiction. I am a fairly intelligent person. I know all this stuff logically, but in the moment, it doesn't matter. I, I can know all the facts, but when my brain decides to hit that fuck it button and I drink, none of that matters. And, you know, and then I just have to go and work through this cycle again. The science says the subconscious is a million times more powerful than the conscious mind. It processes 40 million bytes of data a second in our conscious mind processes 40, <laughs> right? It's a million times more powerful. Yeah, But here's the thing, our conscious mind is the gatekeeper, and I think it's just trying to learn how to take control back. When that subconscious mind starts feeding you all of these messages, how to stop it without pushing the, the bucket button, Absolutely. right? You've got a therapist, and you're involved with the women's Zooms, you're involved with Sobertown, you're involved with the I Am Sober community you're really deeply involved with everything. Definitely. And, you know, I have a remarkable sober community and, and what it really comes down to at this phase for me is really making those different decisions in the heat of the moment. When that craving comes knocking at the door and says, this is going to be the reward that you're seeking. This is going to be the escape that you're seeking is the time that I need to be able to recognize that and check that and go, no, you know what? I need to talk to someone in recovery about this before I flip that switch, before I go buy that bottle, you know? And one of the things that's helped me in the past is keeping in my mind that maybe I can't control a craving. I can't necessarily stop or control a thought, but I have control over my physical body right? I can keep my ass planted in this chair right now physically. And if my ass doesn't leave this chair, I can't go to the liquor store. And if I can't go to the liquor store, I can't buy a bottle to pour down my throat. I have control over my physical body, if nothing else. If I don't pick up my car keys, if I don't walk out the front door, I can't drink. And if I can hold on to that simple action long enough to ride through that craving. Cause as they say, generally cravings last on average, less than 20 minutes. It feels like it'll never end, you know, but the actual intensity of that craving should pass within about 20 minutes. And if you can get yourself doing something else, 
thinking about something else, even better. And, and just connecting with people in the heat of the moment. Have you tried thinking through the craving? I have. Playing the tape forward is another really popular tool that I've used in the past. You know, it really just comes down to that, that knowing what to do and saying, fuck it anyways, situation that has been a, a challenge for me to get past these last couple of years. I have the tools, like you said. Yeah, you do. And it's just getting past that moment to where you're on autopilot, just watching yourself walk in and buy the booze because I'm sure your your conscious mind is screaming, don't, don't. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah, what are you doing? You know better. <laughs> right, you're like a spectator in your own body. Absolutely, that's exactly right. I call that zombie mode. And I used yeah. to be, I didn't want to do it. It's the last thing I wanted to do, but I couldn't stop my arms from turning the wheel into the parking lot, opening up the door, going and buying the booze. And I'm yelling at myself, don't do it. Yep. Drinking against your own will. It's it's insanity. It is. So we're going to follow you. Where are you at right now? 22 25. Days? 25. Boom. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So we just did an episode with Molly. We're going to be following both you and Molly. Did you see any similarities or differences or anything with her podcast? Oh, Molly is such a phenomenal human. She's she's another amazing resource in this community. And I'm I'm so grateful to be kind of tag teaming with her. One of the big things that stuck out to me in listening to her podcast was how different kind of our directions towards drinking come from. Because as Molly outlined, I think she was around a thousand days when when she decided to drink again. And for her, it was very thought out. It was very planned out. You know, she she was operating under the belief that she would be able to be successful with this. And she communicated with people who would support that belief. You know, we both own the fact that neither one of us reached out and talked to someone in recovery about <laughs> these thoughts because both of us would have been called on our bullshit, you know. But I do believe she very seriously came from a direction of... This is something that I think I could be successful with at this point. And I've learned a lot and I've changed a lot. That was almost akin to your first 8.5 years. Exactly. It reminds me of where I was at when I first decided to start drinking back in 2020. Where I'm at now, where I'm at today, I very much know that my drinking will end badly. There, there is no question in my mind that I will have to go through withdrawals again, that I cannot drink long-term because the way I drink, I am not a functional person anymore. I cannot work if I'm drinking. I cannot be a good dog mom. I cannot be a reliable friend or a resource to this community. I am just buried in a bottle until I get off of it again. And then even getting off of it, it takes you a few days to get back out of it. Takes a few days to even just get past the physical part. And I would say probably a week before I'm really starting to see hope again and starting to feel a little bit of optimism and a little bit of, you know, inspiration. It, it takes me to such a dark place. And I, I know this, but again, that that's, you know, logic and addiction do not go hand in hand. I think in a way with that, the hopelessness with you is really deep when you're coming off the alcohol because you have all of these tools mm -hmm. and it just seems like a hopeless place. Tell us how this last 25 days cycled out. 
You know, I will say I have felt on very solid footing this time. And I, I feel like it, it has been a huge push of mine in this last year, especially to really focus on what I can learn in hindsight from, from each of these slips. Each time this has happened, really trying to analyze what took me out? Where was I at mentally? What could I have done differently? Getting very vocal about it, because that is that is one of those things that, again, we feel shame and we feel guilt, and it can be really hard to voice that. This happened again. You know, you just, you feel like a disappointment. You feel like a broken record. But that's, that is, that is an internal voice. Nobody out there is looking at me going, oh, you're a disappointment. And how many days did you go through that? So this time I would say I actually pushed myself outside of that a little bit more than than I have in the past. So normally I'll I'll give myself two to three days of kind of isolating and really trying to get through the physical piece before I start to talk to people about it, it happening again. This time, I would say the day after I stopped drinking, I was already putting it out in a few of my Telegram groups and hey guys, you know drank again, just want you to know, you know, like I'm reaching out, I'm calling it out. I'm reaching out for some support. I got on a Zoom meeting. So I had been drinking up until Monday morning and I hosted a Zoom meeting Wednesday evening. So I was still in that 48 hour kind of physical, still feeling pretty yuck. But one of the the women who would have been hosting that night couldn't do it. And I was like, this is my sign. This is my sign that I need to get on a meeting. I need to be connecting with other people in the community. And I was like, yeah, I, I can do it. I'll be there. And I was a weepy mess. You know, I, I become very emotional, you know, 48 to 72 hours. And I cried every time I pretty much said a sentence. It ended in tears trying to claw out from under this again. And you are providing support to other ladies. And that is a key to me, to be honest, is is being able to be a support to others who are who are going through this. It keeps me plugged in in a way that accountability for my own recovery does not. So what is your plan this time? Because you know that moment's going to come again. There's going to be another bucket button moment. And do you have a plan to get past it? You know, the big thing that I really want to stay focused on this time around, I my my danger zone days tend to be between about 90 and 120 days. And so I really want to be calling that out as those get closer in my groups, in my meetings. Hey, guys, I'm day 85. You know, check on me. Send me a shootout, you know, if, if, and, and honestly, the people in my community, in my circle are starting to recognize this. I had a, a recovery girl reach out yesterday. Hey, you've been kind of quiet on, on social media lately. You doing okay? Like people are starting to recognize my tendency to pull back if I'm struggling. And thankfully, you know, I was not in a place I was struggling yesterday, but I appreciate the overabundance of caution that could potentially be the person who calls me out and says, Hey, are you struggling? And and opens that that line of communication. So I just I need to actually be on top of these are my danger zone areas, and this is when I could use extra support from you guys, and and proactively putting that out there. So we need to be circling the wagons for you through that time. Yep. That's interesting too, because you say it's the anxiety and all of that that really kicks you off into these moments. Because that's that area where the emotional unthaw hits. Big thaw, yes. The big exactly. thaw. Mm -hmm. So we're yeah, going so. to be circling the wagons around you. We're going to be following you. And you're still going to be podcasting. 
I got to get with you. There was somebody that just emailed me and we're going to keep you involved in the community and just see how this goes. What do you think? Excellent. I love it. Me too. Michael, MMC13. Boom. Why do I always oh. forget the M? <laughs> it's a double M. It is a double M. What's the other M? Stands for Miranda. It's the only female name in my, <laughs> my full Michael name. Miranda. Michael Miranda Charles. Yes. Boom. Okay, my <laughs> friend. And I'm going to pick back up with Molly around day 21 and maybe maybe day 50 with you. What do you think? That sounds great. I love it. So see you in 25 days. Awesome. It's a day. Boom. Thank you so much. Thanks, Drifter.